Turn again with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, and we'll finish up chapter 11 and get down through the first nine verses of for chapter 12 today, 11:27 to 12:9. In many ways, this morning we begin a brand new study in Genesis. For there's a significant difference between Genesis chapters 1 to 11 and Genesis chapters 12 to 50. The difference is not what some have supposed that chapters 1 to 11 are folklore and 12 to 50 have more to do with history. It's not that at all. But Genesis 1 to 11 contain ancient history that has to do with the whole world and about which we have virtually no other record. Genesis 12 to 50, on the other hand, contain the history of a particular people, Abram and his descendants. And in relation to this history, we have increasingly more extra-biblical records to compare. Quite a, di- quite a difference between these first 11 chapters and the rest of the book. In fact, the difference between these two parts of Genesis is, is so great that my reference library this week changed considerably. Two of the books that I use regularly, those writers only wrote about Genesis 1 to 11, so I'm through with them. And uh, two other books, different authors, only write about Genesis 12 to 50, so I have two brand new authors that you'll be hearing about. And then one of my best commentaries, that by Dr. Boyce, has three volumes, and we finished volume one, conveniently, between chapter 11 and chapter 12. So I'm very aware in my study that we've come to a milestone in the book. We've uh, we have completed this week, we will complete uh, chapters 1 to 11. I trust that the second major portion of the book will be just as good or better as what we've learned. Well, let me read the text beginning back in verse 27 and then on down to chapter 12, verse 9. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldees, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Canaan, they settled there. To Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled throughout, through the land as far as the site of the great tree at Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built the altar, an altar to the Lord, and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. And we'll stop there. Just a word about how this text is divided up, so you'll know where we're going with it. The last verses of chapter 11 are clearly an introduction to what happens in chapter 12. Then that main text in chapter 12, verse 1 and 9, has two cycles of promise and response. So that in in, in verses 1 to 3, God makes a promise to Abram. 
And in verse 4, 5, and 6, we see Abram's response. And then in verse, the beginning of verse 7, God appears to Abram with another promise. And in verses, the last part of 7 through 9, we see uh, Abram's response to God again. So what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of lump the promises together and talk about God's promises. We're going to lump the responses together and talk about God's about Abram's response, and we'll talk about that introductory material along with, uh, as, as it throws light on Abram's response. So we really have two points here, one about promise and one about response. The first one is this. God promises his people the world. God promises his people the world. You've heard of people promising you the world. <laughs> Many a young man has promised his young bride, the world. None has yet delivered. <laughs> In fact, if somebody says they promised us the world, watch your wallet, hold on tight, for we know it's too good to be true. But here, we're going to see that in his commitments to Abram, as we think about what that meant and how that unfolded, God did nothing less than promise his people the world. Now, this promise, these promises in verses 2 and 4 are quite different. It's quite in a contrast to what we've just been looking at. Quite different to what happened in the first 11 chapters. Three times in chapters 1 to 11, judgment has come. Five times we've heard God's curse. We've heard the curse on the serpent, the curse on the ground, the curse on Cain, the curse on, on Noah's uh, grandson Canaan, and the curse on the, on the activities at Babel. Now, in these first verses, we hear five times God's blessing. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And, and note the difference between this incident and the Tower of Babel story that we just talked about last time. In chapter 11, men are scheming and dreaming without God of all that they're going to do. In chapter 12, God is declaring what he's going to do. And we hear again and again, I will, I will, I will. In chapter 11, they speak to each other about their great, grandiose plans and pump one another up. But in chapter 12, God speaks to Abram about God's plan. In chapter 11, they find the plain of Shinar and they settle down there to, to make a name for themselves and to be rooted there. In chapter 12, Abram is settled in a place quite close to the plain of Shinar. But God picks him up and moves him out of there to scatter him out to do his will. In chapter 11, men determined to build a great city and to make a great name for themselves. In chapter 12, God promises to build a great nation and make a great name for his chosen, Abraham. Well, it sounds a little overstated at first, but God's, God promises here his children, the whole world. Let's look at the promises a minute. They're found actually in verses 2 to 4, or 2 to three, two and 3. Several things here. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. Secondly, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Thirdly, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Fourthly, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And then finally, down in verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. Five key promises that God makes to Abram. A great nation, a great name, blessing on those who bless you, and curses on those who curse you, blessing to, uh, through you to the whole world, and this land as your inheritance. Now folks, when we look throughout the whole Old Testament, we see that God did what he promised. Make no mistake, God kept his promises to Abraham. God promised that uh, from this one man, Abraham, would come a great nation. And sure enough, the whole history of the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel, who are the children of Abraham. Not to mention the fact that there are other nations that come through his son Ishmael, which God didn't even talk about. And God promised to make Abram's name great. And certainly it is. For us, he's the father of all the faithful in the church. For the Jews, he's the most revered patriarch, Father Abraham. In fact, even the Arabs of the world consider Abraham their father, for they're the descendants of Ishmael. God kept his promise to make Abram's name great. 
And God promised to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And throughout history, God did exactly that. He blessed those who blessed Israel, and he cursed those who cursed Israel. Think, for example, of the curses brought against Pharaoh, who dared to oppress God's people when God said, set them free. God brought Pharaoh down. Or think of the blessing that came to the surrounding nations when, when, when David was the king and his kingdom thrived. Or think of, think of Haman in the book of Esther being hung in his own gallows that he built for Mordecai, who he intended to curse. God said, no, I curse those who curse you, Mordecai. You see, God kept his promises throughout the whole Old Testament. We see it again and again and again. God has blessed those who blessed his people, and God has cursed those who cursed his people. God promised to give his people the, uh, the, the land of Canaan. Now, Abraham never held title to any of that land. One little piece where he buried his wife and where he eventually was buried. We'll talk about that in a moment, but the day came that Abraham's descendant, Joshua, led the people, all of Abraham's descendants, and into the land they went and took possession of this land, and, and, it, and, and their, their, their uh, rule over it grew and grew until during the time of King David, its boundaries were expanded to the widest proportion. God kept his promise to give his people that land. It's just as King Solomon declared and dedicated the ancient temple at the pinnacle of the, of the kingdom, of, uh, as we see it in the Old Testament. And, and, and King Solomon said, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people just as he promised. And then listen to this. Not one word has failed of the good promises he gave. I tell you today, God keeps his promise. Not one word has failed of the promise God made to Abram or to Moses or to David. Oh, folks, this is a great truth. It tells us what kind of God God is. He's faithful. But this great truth is only the beginning of this passage. For here God not only makes promises to Abram to make him great and to make a famous nation live, promises that his people will possess the whole world. That's just impossible to overstate the importance of these little verses of Genesis 12. In fact, they are so important that God himself writes a commentary on these verses in the New Testament to explain them to us so that we don't perchance miss the point of what God wants us to see here. For it's not just about Abram and the Jewish nation. It's much bigger than that. We find so many of those comments in the book of Galatians, but let me read you one verse from Galatians 3, verse 16. Here we are giving a, given a very key insight to the meaning of these promises. Listen to what it says. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So the Lord says in Galatians 3.16, did you catch that? That means that whatever fulfillment of these promises we see in the life of Abram and the patriarchs and the Jewish nation, all of those are only just a token of the true meaning that God intended. The real promise belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the singular seed of Abram. So let's look at those promises again and see. Do they apply to Jesus? Well, God promised to make of him a great nation. And sure enough, the risen Lord Jesus has ascended to the Father and has been seated on the, at the right hand of the Father, enthroned on high as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his great nation is nothing less than the eternal kingdom of God over which he rules. God promised that he would make his name great. Has, has God done that for Jesus? 
Well, sure enough, we read in Philippians 2 that God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's given him a great name. God promised to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. Is that true of Jesus? Sure enough, when Jesus himself speaks about judgment day, he declares blessing and cursing upon people based upon how they have treated his people. Remember what he said? Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. You bless me and my children, and I'll bless you. And you curse me and my, through my children, and I'll curse you, Jesus said. God also promised that all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Is that true of Jesus? Well, that's how the Apostle Paul understood it. He writes in Galatians 2, verse 8 and 9, let me read it to you. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And listen to this phrase. And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, and he quotes, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That blessing of Abraham on the nations, the blessing which Christ brings, is nothing less than the blessing of the gospel. Peace with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Eternal life through Christ. Finally, God promised Abraham, Abraham's seed that he would possess the land of promise. And sure enough, Israel, we noted, did possess the land of promise. Oh, does this apply to Jesus? Let me tell you, Jesus doesn't just intend to possess that little postage stamp piece of real estate in the Middle East that ancient land of Canaan inherited by the Jews. Oh no, that was only a token of the whole. In Psalm 2, God promised his son, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The Lord Jesus is not just coming to possess Israel. He possesses the whole earth. And when we read in the book of Revelation, what do we find? A whole new heaven and a whole new earth. And, and nothing less than the heavenly Jerusalem descending heaven on earth under the rule of our Lord and Savior and King Jesus, who has inherited the blessing. There's great news for you and me who believe in Jesus. In Christ, we inherit all this too. That's what it says in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, you see, I didn't read this all into these verses. This is God's intended meaning. That when he made these promises to Abraham, God promised his people the world. Promise to be realized, not just in Abraham, but in Christ. Now, I don't know, but I bet Abram would have been happy to settle for a lot less than that. <laughs> After all, Abram seems to have been a wealthy man, living in a big, bustling commercial city, Ur of the Chaldees. Seems to be faring just fine, thank you. And he probably would have been happy if God had just given him a little extra blessing. He had gone on with his life. But you see, this is not about God giving Abraham what he wants. That's not the point. That's a distortion that we American Christians have come up with, that God's job is to give Christians what they want. No, this is about God promising to do his will. God working out his agenda for the world in contrast to the agenda of chapter 11 that the world came up with. God reclaiming his whole creation by working through this one man and eventually through his seed, the Savior, the Lord, the King. To reclaim the creation. And God's plan for his people, chosen by his grace, redeemed by his son, is nothing less than to give us the whole world. Dear people, this is the only hope for the world. That God would reclaim it and populate it 
with a new race of people cleansed and made new by Christ. Whatever hope you might have for the world, whatever hope you might have for your own life, if it's not this hope, it's hopeless. It's useless. And old Christian, are your dreams too small? How often we just dream of making a living and having a nice little house and a dear family and retiring in comfort someday. While God is reclaiming the whole world through his son and has included you and me in that inheritance, how can that not capture our imagination? God promised the world to his people. But there's a second point that we see in Abram's responses to God's promise. And that's this, that God's promises demand radical obedience. God's promises demand radical obedience. When we read the New Testament, Abraham is repeatedly set before us as the great man of faith. Abraham believed God, we hear again and again. And that's certainly true. We would never want to minimize that. But throughout this section in Genesis 12, Abram's faith is never mentioned. Never. Oh, he undoubtedly has faith, for we see lots of evidence of it. But the text speaks of it only in terms of obedience. Not what he believed, what he did. How different from our own day when we so often seek a faith assuming it has nothing to do with obedience. I think this is what James was talking about when he said, you want to see my faith? I'll show you by my works. That certainly was true of Abraham. For make no mistake, it was going to take some faith for God's promise demanded radical, radical obedience. Notice the call of Abram in verse 1. Let me read it again. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. If I might just summarize what God said to Abram, he said, leave, leave, leave. Leave your country. Leave your people. Leave your father's household. And go. Where? I'll tell you in due time. You leave. Now folks, that isn't so easy. It isn't so easy to just pull up roots and leave everything. It's easy for us to read this about Abram because we don't know anything about his life and we just assume, oh, well, he's a nomad and he kind of moved on. That's not true. Abram lived in the modern city of Ur of the Chaldees. Professor Joyce Baldwin shares some details about what we now know about that city. We now have over 100,000 clay tablets describing the details of that city, written in two different languages. We know that the population in Abraham's time was at least a quarter of a million people in this great city. We know that it was a strong commercial and manufacturing city. We know that they got raw materials from as far away as India. We know that one firm of weavers made 12 different grades of cloth. We know that there were jewelers and shipbuilders and copper workers and leather workers and carpenters and many more skilled tradesmen in this great city. Abraham was not a nomad. Abraham was not accustomed to being part of a traveling band living in a tent. He was a city dweller, a man of some culture, in a very cultured, big city. And in the midst of the city of Ur of the Chaldees was a grand temple tower, complete with a school and a library and a market, all to accompany the sanctuary, where all their gods were worshipped. And Abram and his father Terah and his brothers were among the worshippers. His father's name, Terah, and his wife's name, and his sister-in-law's name, all seem to be derived from the ancient gods of the year of the Chaldees. Abraham grew up there. He worshipped there. 
He studied there. He did business there. This was home sweet home for Abram. And then when God called Abram, he gave him these promises about, I will make you a great nation. What a joke. Abram is almost 70 years old, probably, when he first hears this call. He and Sarah have no children. A great nation, father of nations. You must be kidding. It's not possible. And then there's another complication that we find in our text, which is actually rather confusing. For Acts chapter 7, when Stephen tells the story, he makes it very clear that God's call came to Abraham while he lived in the Ur of the Chaldees. But according to those last verses of chapter 11, it was Terah, Abraham's father, who actually first migrated the first part of the trip from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran. Now we don't know how that came about. We can only speculate. Perhaps Abraham heard God's call and began to talk about moving and and Dad said, that's a good idea. We ought to move. You know, I've heard things are going on up at Haran. Let's pack up the whole family and go. And so, being the head of the family, he did just that. And he packed up uh, Abram and his, uh, and his brother and his brother's son Lot. And off they went to Haran. But you see, that wasn't really that helpful. <laughs> For Terah got as far as Haran, which, by the way, was another center of the worship of the moon god, which would have been Terah's god. And he was kind of comfortable in, in, in Heron. It was kind of another big city. It was like New York and Los Angeles. And we got there, and now we're comfortable. We settle in. We just stopped and settled, on, settled down until Terah died there. Can you put yourself in Abram's shoes for a minute? You heard God's call so long ago, but now Dad and his family have all resolved to move and be part of the move, going partway, and yet now you're settled down again. And here you are, and those promises and that call was some time ago, and now dad dies. You can't just put dad in the ground and walk off. You see, we would probably understand if Abraham said to God, Lord, I, th I think I'll just pass on this one. I'm doing all right. For everything about it looked impossible. But that's not what we read. Look at verse 4 and 5. So, Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. In spite of all the difficulties, in spite of all of the impossible situation, in spite of all of the complexity, how this relates to the rest of the family, in spite of the deep roots that he had, Abram just did it. God said, leave, and he left. Hebrews 11, that great hall of fame of the faithful, this obedience of Abram is noted. We read there, by faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. God's promises, folks, demand radical obedience. Dear people, that's still true. This is still absolutely true. Is God's call on Abraham an, an, an example of the conversion of a pagan? Or is it an example of a call to missionary service? Which requires such a radical obedience? Conversion of a pagan or missionary service? Both. Both. When Jesus came to Peter and James and John along the shores of Galilee. He did not say to him, could you guys take a couple of minutes and go over the spiritual laws with me and pray this little prayer before you get back to work? No, he didn't say that. He said, you, you, follow me. And they dropped their fishing nets and left their father who was in business with him with a hired hand and they followed him. Would they have been disciples if they said, no thanks, we believe, but we're not going? 
Now this is what conversion is. God's promises held out in the gospel demand radical obedience. There is no other valid Christianity. If you think otherwise, you're kidding yourself about your own Christianity. There is no such response of just, that's nice to know. Sure, I believe that. But it doesn't change anything. God's promises demand radical obedience. But this is not just the way God calls people to himself. This is the way of life for God's people. This is how we must respond to God's promises. Oh, we come to know God's will differently than Abram did. We, God now makes his will known through his word and through the conviction that his Holy Spirit brings. His, he applies it to our own hearts. But the response that he requires of us is no less radical than what he required of Abram. Jesus said it very clearly. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, hold on to his life, invest his life in what he wants, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for me will save it. You see, God still reserves the right to call you to call me, to pack up and go wherever he wants to send us. Not quibbling about how impossible it is, just doing it. We never outgrow such radical obedience. If you'll bear with a personal illustration, I want to tell you where I first learned that. Both Jane and I come from a very interesting uh, childhood. For both of us know from experience what this looks like. When we were young, age seven for me, we didn't know each other at this time, age seven for me, for Jane, age eight for me. We watched our fathers individually, hundreds of miles apart, in different situations. We watched our fathers do something like what Abram did. Each of them in different parts of the country, through completely different circumstances, each of them came to be absolutely convinced that God was calling them to do something that involved uprooting their family and going away somewhere. And with this text, this text ringing in their ears, convincing them that God had the right to make such a radical demand on them. Jane's father sold the farm, packed up his family, in what you would consider a travel trailer, and left Illinois for the South, where he worked till he died at a little Bible college. And my father, when I was eight years old, cashed in his retirement as a civil service employee, and picked up his family and moved against great pressure from his brothers and his mother. How dare you do this to your family? You're going to destroy your family, etc., etc. Moved to serve the Lord in children's work until he retired. And in spite of the considerable hardship that those two men faced, to be faithful to that calling for the next 30, 40 years, our lives and the lives of our children, rather than being destroyed, have been profoundly changed and immeasurably blessed to this very day by our Father's radical obedience. You see, folks, this isn't just ancient history. This is the life of discipleship. Every person who goes into the ministry, every person who goes to the mission field, every person who would give his life to serve the Lord must come to grips with this kind of radical Lay everything on the line, obedience. It's just how it is. But it is also true that every person who would be a faithful steward back home, every person who would faithfully share their faith at work, every person who would pursue holiness according to God's command, must also learn this radical, no-holds-barred obedience to Christ. 
Indeed, it is true that every person who would trust the promise of the gospel and would know forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus and new life through his resurrection, every single Christian must display this same, leave it all behind, totally change my allegiances, follow Christ, kind of radical obedience. God's promises, especially the promises of the gospel, demand radical obedience. There is no other Christianity. There is no other Christianity. Anything that claims to be is hypocrisy. It's a sham. Oh, but that's not the end of Abram's story here. For consider what Abram did now that he left. He got to Canaan, and then what? Look at verses 6 to 9. Let me read it again. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared there to, the, uh, appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched, pitched his tent with Bethel on the, e- on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. We would wish that the story would end with Abram arriving in the land of Canaan after making this terrible uh, decision, and suddenly uh, the land was open before him, and he moved in to settle down and built his big house and had a big ranch and places for all of his people and lived happily ever after. That's how we read it in the Christian novels. But that's not what happened. Abraham arrived to be an alien in a strange land. He traveled as far as the great tree of Moreh. Moreh means teaching. And, and from what we've been able to tell, this place in Shechem was a, was a center of Canaanite worship and Canaanite training. Abram arrived there and saw what he was up against, all the Canaanite religions. There he could have despaired, but there God appeared to him and said, this is my confirmation. This is the land I'm giving you. And then Abraham left and he went to Bethel and Ai where he pitched his tent for a while. And then our text ends with Abraham packing up and headed toward the Negev, that's the southern desert area. Hebrews 11 explains his life in Canaan. It says, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. You see, Abram's not lost as he wanders throughout the land of Canaan. He's not just wandering aimlessly here. Abram is a pilgrim in the land of Canaan. Jim Boyce explains, what is a pilgrim? Not someone who has merely left home. A person who has done that but no more than that is a drifter. Rather, a pilgrim is one who has left home but is also traveling to another home. A pilgrim has had a vision of a goal, a destination, and is determined to hang loose with everything else until the achievement of that new and better place. Now we know that's what Abram had in mind, for we look at what he did as he traveled about. He built altars and worshipped Yahweh. You see that in verse 7? So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Here in Shechem, a center of Canaanite worship, Abraham gets over and he gathers a bunch of stones and he builds an altar and worships Yahweh in the face of the Canaanite gods. And we see it again in verse 8. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You see what Abram is doing here? He knows what God's plan is. God is going to give him and his descendants this land. So even though the Canaanites now possess it, even though there's not a chance that they're going to give him one inch of it, in faith, in radical obedience, 
Abram goes about the land claiming the inheritance, building altars and worshiping God, hallowing this ground. Derek Kidner explains Abram's action planted the flag, so to speak, at the heart of the promised land and declared that Yahweh's law runs everywhere. Radical obedience. For how long did Abram do this? How long did he pursue this nomadic life of a pilgrim? How long did he wait? Well, listen to Hebrews 11 again as it reports on what happened with Abraham and his descendants. I quote, All these people were still living in faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. How long does God require radical obedience? Until they lay you in the ground. As long as you have another breath. That's what Abram did. Well, folks, this is the most difficult challenge to our day. Dr. Ian Dugod, who teaches Hebrew down at Westminster in California, calls this living in the reality gap. He defines the reality gap as that gap between the promises of God, the promises God has made, and the reality that we see. And there's always a gap, isn't there? Abram knew God's promise. I'm going to give you this land of Canaan. It's yours for you and your descendants. And what did he see? A land filled with people saying, this is our land, worshiping their gods, doing their thing. And uh, he was probably not that welcome. Promises. Reality. The reality gap. This is our common experience, isn't it? God says that he has raised Jesus and made him the king of kings and the lord of lords and he reigns over the whole world. But we look and it doesn't look like Jesus is reigning over the world. It looks very much like the whole world is under the control of the evil one. It says that Jesus had been given a name that's above every name, above every title, above every dominion, above every king, every president. But it certainly doesn't look like that he has much power over the president of this country or the governor of this state, does it? Why we pass laws and judges make decisions every day that just trample over Christ's lordship. The reality gap. Promise in what we see. He says, blessed are the meek, for the meek will inherit the earth. But we know that the reality is the meek don't get anything but trampled. The proud and the arrogant and the self-sufficient inherit the earth. He says the gates of hell cannot withstand the advance of the church. That's the promise. But the reality is, look at us, a little band of motley bunch of people. And what do we have as our great weapons? Words. Prayers. <laughs> we have no guns, no tanks. Hardly any money, no power. <laughs> Gates of hell can't withstand this. Reality gap. God says nothing in the world can touch my chosen one. No one can snatch them out of my hand. But the truth is we make trips to the hospital as we watch our dear loved ones, children of the Father, 
sick and hurting and dying and suffering. God's promise, the reality we see. And as we live in this reality gap, we are always tempted to despair. To just get so discouraged that we just quit. I give up. It's not ever going to happen. How long do you think that Abram wandered around the land, living in the tent, thinking about the great spread he had back in Europe, the Chaldees? Great job he had. Here he is wandering around, living in a tent. How long do you think he did that before the thought crossed his mind, maybe just go back to Haran and wake this out in more comfort? We know that the people of Israel later on came out of the land of Egypt through God's mighty hand of deliverance, and it didn't take them but a few days before they said, we were better off back in Egypt's slaves. They couldn't face the reality gap between God's promise and what they saw. Jesus' disciples faced the same thing. We read in Acts, in, in John chapter 6, that when Jesus started saying hard things, that the disciples who had been following him by the multitude, they began to leave in droves. And Jesus looked at the twelve and he said, well, you guys leaving too? And Peter, in one of those classic moments, gave the right answer. He said, Lord, where shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. That's where we live, folks, in the reality. Sure, it looks impossible. Sure, it looks discouraging. Sure, it looks like it'll never happen. Sure, it seems, it seems like it's, it's, it's a hopeless promise. I think of Jeremiah as he sat in the ruins, the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem, as it looked like all of the promises of the great nation and the great city and the Lord's presence were lying in ruins. And what does he say? I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. I will wait for him. You see, God's promises still require radical, persevering obedience. Why? Because the reality that we see is sinful, fallen, fearful place is far from the promises that God has made. Oh yes, we taste of them already, but we do not yet see them all. But I will say to myself, the Lord is my portion, I will wait for him. Dear people, this is not the easy way, but this is the way of greatness. This is God's way. Abram had to absolutely abandon his allegiance to comfort. His allegiance to family. His allegiance to home. To safety. To predictability. He had to absolutely abandon those things to walk in the promise of God. And that's exactly how Jesus calls his disciples to this day. How it plays out in your life may be different than how it plays out, played out in Abram's life, but the principle is exactly the same. So why would you want to do something so impossible, so seemingly insane? Uh, because it's God's promise. <laughs> because God has promised his people the world. Because God's promise is certain to come to fulfillment while the world will pass away. This morning I call you to embrace God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. But I tell you that it still demands radical obedience. In closing, I'd like to just read an interesting little quote from Dr. James Boyce. He says, Back in the year of the Chaldees, Abram had a brother whose name was Nahor. Over the course of his life, he built a city and named it after himself. If you had asked anyone living in the land of the Chaldeans about those precocious sons of Terah, everyone would have been able to tell you about Nahor. 
Oh, yes, Nahor, he's a success. He built a great city. He'll be remembered forever. We know Nahor. But Abram? Uh, oh, well, he went off somewhere. Canaan, I think. He never really amounted to much. That's the way the world views it. Nahor's success. Abram a failure. But with God, it's the other way around. For today, Nahor is virtually forgotten. In fact, he would be entirely forgotten if you're not Abram's brother. <laughs> While Abram is known and revered by millions around the world. Do not build for this world as Nahor did. Be an Abram and leave a mark on eternity. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for the promises that you made, which we don't even immediately see. They're so full and rich and deep and wide. They overwhelm us, Lord. And we have to dig a little bit and stand back and look at the whole before we can see how really all-encompassing they are. Forgive us, Lord, where we have reduced your promises down to, to suppose that your whole agenda was to make us feel good this moment. Oh Lord, may we see that you are reclaiming your whole creation. That you are redeeming a world. That you are giving your people the whole world. Or may we change our agendas to fit yours. And then Lord, when we think of such radical obedience that we see in Abram and that we hear that you require of us, we would, we would certainly despair. For we don't find such faithfulness in ourselves. And yet, Lord, we want to. By your grace, give us such a faithful heart. May we really believe what you said enough that we begin to do it, trusting that you are going to do exactly what you said, no matter how impossible it looks. Lord, we read that you made us the children of Abraham through Jesus. You made us heirs of these promises. Cause us to act like the children of Abraham. With such faithful obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.